Hey everybody, I am Jake Wiskirchen. Thanks again for coming back and listening. This is Noggin Notes, and I am your host. And I'm very excited about today's podcast. I interview Eva Kuralova, who is an author. She lives in Calgary, Alberta, in Canada. And she's also part of the gender-critical culture that's pushing back against the medicalization of child sex change stuff that's going on in the gender-affirming realm. It's uh, If you're not familiar, it's, uh, it's an interesting conversation. We, we certainly mentioned several people throughout the course of the podcast whom you can follow on social media and in their various Substack forums to find out more about this stuff. But I think you're going to find the conversation interesting. I think it's honest. I think it's intellectually honest. And I, I learned a lot, as I always do when I interview people. But I think it's a really important discussion to start having when we're, when we're flirting with the idea of medicalizing children's transitions uh, without their consent, really, and certainly without informed consent about the risks that lie therein. So I'm not going to ruin the podcast by continuing to talk about this. You can listen to Eva and I chat. But in the meantime, if you or someone you know is in need of a mental health screening, you can get a free and anonymous mental health screening by going to wtta.org slash love. That's walkthetalkamerica.org slash love, wtta.org. And or you can go to the Zephyr Wellness website. That's my company that I operate here in Reno, Nevada. It's zephyrwellness.org. And we also have the same screenings under the screenings link on our website. The screenings are powered by Mental Health America. They have high fidelity, and uh, it's only a few questions. So if you're in need or you're uh, just wanting to check in on yourself and see if your anxiety is where it should be or if it's too high, please visit either of those websites and take a look. Without further delay, here is my interview with Eva Kuralova. Welcome back, listening audience, you lovely people. Thank you again for downloading our content. We appreciate that. It's always humbling to know that people take time out of their day to listen to what I have to say and the people I interview. And today we have with us uh, Eva Kuralova, who is uh, all the way from Canada. Hi. Hi. <laughs> yes, uh, my name is Eva Kuralova. It's oh, it is Eva. Awesome, but that's totally fine. Yes. Oh, well. So you learn something new <laughs> every day. That's totally fine. Yeah, I'm all the way from Canada. I'm in Calgary, Alberta. Um, I am a writer. Um, I talk a lot about gender and sex and gender ideology. And that's what I do. Yeah, we connected on Twitter. Um, and I've, I'm real, I, I say I say blessed a lot. And I don't mean it in the way that people just flippantly throw it out as a you know, Passover uh, type of like way of saying gratitude, but it, like I truly am, I truly feel blessed to meet a lot of the people I have on on Twitter, and it's always really cool to have conversations IRL or as close as you can get to IRL through Zoom, yeah. and um, I've I've made some good friends, and I'm really excited. This is the first time you and I are actually talking, even though we've corresponded uh, several times. But I really yeah, am yeah. blessed to to have connected with you and. I will never forget that we were pinging back and forth, and at some point or another, you were like, "You're Jake from Disaffected," and I was like, "I am." <laughs> <laughs> like, am I am I some sort of like celebrity or something? Yeah, like, I yes. liked your appearance on there. I, I, it was it was really nice. You were a nice contrast to Josh, so yeah. I think I sought you out after that. Yeah. Or maybe we were already following each other. I'm not sure. We were. We were. Yeah, we were talking. Okay. But um, you you connected the dots somehow, and yes. and I was like, 
whoa. And then <laughs> and then I realized the power of podcasting. Um, oh, and, yeah. And or Twitter. But yeah, jo- Josh Slocum, for those of you who don't know, he's he's been on this show before. He's wonderful. He's a, he's a good friend. And um, his podcast, Disaffected, has been very influential in my life the last couple of years, not only professionally with the way that I train my interns and students, but personally as well. I've been able to apply a lot of his concepts to my personal life and to my friends. So if you want to learn about personality disorders, and hey, who doesn't, um, go listen to Disaffected by Joshua Slocum. Uh, he's he's a wonderful, wonderful person, and he breaks things down very well. But this isn't about him; this is yeah. about us. Yeah. So. <laughs> good plug. Good plug. Yeah. He's a great guy. But yeah. <laughs> so Eva, um, you you run in this uh, gender critical space, we could call it. And mm-hmm. uh, Stephanie Wynn has also been on the show. Um, although when she came on, it was right at the beginning of her endeavor into this into this world. What I'd like you to do is frame your perspective and your reference on how you got into it in the first place and what it really means. And then I can just pepper in some questions as we go, because I'm very curious about your your angle. Sure. Um, so it's been a while now that I've been sort of involved in this, I think. So it's kind of hard for me to think back to the story because so much happened at the same time. But it must have been either late 2018 or early 2019. Um, I started sort of questioning all of this, like up until then, because I'm a lesbian. Um, and so it had been really easy for me to just kind of get ushered into accepting sort of all the trans stuff, all the gender identity claims. Um, let me, but then let me interrupt you real quick there. Uh, yep. cause I'm, uh, that's one place I want to hover for a second. I'm glad you mentioned that. I was hoping you get to it at some point, but the, there's a, there's a special significant association there. And I don't want you just to breeze over the whole, it's easy to get ushered in because I'm a lesbian help break that down for the listening audience please because I've I, that was something new that I learned over the last couple of years and it took me a minute to wrap my head around it but there's a difference you guys you guys in the L the G and the B very much separate from the T the Q I plus right yeah well that's what we fight for now yeah the, the some of us who are trying to like get away from it yeah um I just feel the reason it was so easy to get swept up in it is because you know growing up I came out at 16 um First of all, it was also very politically like leftist, you know, because that's kind of what you're told, especially if you're like a young gay person, like this is the side that accepts you. This is the side that wants to give you marriage. Um, So then as as I was sort of growing up, you just feel like you're sort of um, in a group with these people, in a community with all these people like the T the T has been tacked on for a while, ever since I was a teenager. Right. So you kind of you just sort of absorb it as you as you grow up if you don't think very critically about it you just accept that okay lgbt they're a part of our community um i should accept this so it wasn't until my late 20s that i started to feel kind of uneasy about it up until that point it was easy enough to just accept when they would say sex and gender are different you know genders in the brain and it was all stuff that i thought was just sort of social niceties that were just saying to people to make them feel better you know like that you can mm-hmm. be a woman your gender not by your sex and i i didn't realize that people either truly believed it you know or i just thought people were being nice and i was like okay i'm a nice person so i'm gonna go along with this um but stuff started cropping up like i think the first thing that sort of caught my attention was this stupid buzzfeed article about whether the lesbian identity will survive the gender revolution and i was like what do they that was my first introduction to the fact that there were women and lesbians who were critical of Uh, the idea of being transgender or the idea of gender identity but I didn't quite that didn't still push me over the edge at that point you know like I I was just like wait this is kind of weird why that's when I knew 
that I would never, let's say, because the article, this is a bit confusing. The article talked about how like, you know, trans lesbians and all this. And that didn't sit right with me. Right. I was like, okay, yeah. those are men. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like either one or the other. Yeah, exactly. So, but I still sort of was like, okay, whatever, it's fine. Then I came, then I started coming across uh, stories about, you know, trans women and women's sports. And that also didn't sit right with me. Like just right away, I was like, that's not right. But it still wasn't happening on a large enough scale that it caught my attention. And then finally, it was the Jonathan Yaniv, um, the man in Vancouver who was trying to get a Brazilian wax from a lot of women. I think at one point there was 12 or 14 of them he reached out to. Um, none of them would do it because he's actually a man. He would sometimes catfish. He would use photos of women and he would reach out to them. And then when it came time to do it, he would reveal that, oh, I'm a transgender woman, you know, and they would say, oh, sorry, I can't do that. Help help me understand um, the, the Brazilian wax thing, because like if, if I'm a dude and I just want my pubes cleaned, like, can't I just go do that? Or like what, there, what was the tension there? Yeah, exactly. There are places that specialize in doing that for men. He, but, you know, okay. he was he was reaching out to uh, salons that some of these women, they worked out of their homes. And they were always immigrant women. They mm. had, you know, they didn't want a strange man in their house. And um, uh, yeah, sorry, my dog's playing with her. Yeah, so he, and then he took them all to the Human Rights Tribunal. Uh, he took p- possibly 12 of them because they wouldn't perform this service on him. Wow. And and then what really struck me is, so eventually the tribunal ruled against him, but only because he was so blatantly racist. You know, own, like if he hadn't gone about it and quite because there was lots of messages and, and it was quite obvious he targeted these women. Um, if he hadn't gone about it in quite that way, he may have won. He may have like been able to get, you know, damages from these women. That's wild. And so that whole story. Yeah. I didn't know that how that concluded. I only heard about it and it was like, oh, yeah. dude, trying to, okay, fine, pass himself out. I didn't know it went that far. That's that's crazy. It, it went so far. And the thing is, I had come across this story possibly a few months prior to really paying attention to it and then something kind of a few months later dragged my brain to to look into it again because I was starting to really question all this stuff and so I went back and I found that article and I somehow google searches led to like all sorts of information about who this really was and I was shocked by kind of my initial reaction to reading this story that was that seemed quite sympathetic it was on the national post which is a more uh, right-leaning paper but it seemed quite sympathetic and I was always thinking, oh, there must be some misunderstanding here. Uh, it probably isn't as bad as it seems. But lo and behold, looking back, it really was just a very predatory man who was, you know, taking advantage of the fact that, you know, he's he's legally female now and these women have to do this. And he dragged them through two years of just, you know, nightmares. The, a lot of these women just stopped doing their businesses because they were so distraught by the whole That's like so ordeal. Sad. Yeah, so that kind of really woke me up to what was going on. And after that... Um, I just started getting more active. I think I went onto Twitter late 2019. And yeah, the rest is history. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, so I want to be very precise. I like to be as, as clear as possible with my language and communicate well. Um, this is This conversation is not to suggest that we are trying to eliminate trans people right and there are there's there are very sharp lines drawn i think between trans people who are just living their lives and i know a handful of them and then trans rights activists who are Mm -hmm. very screechy and rigid in their ideologies what has been your experience with trying to walk around that line and 
do it honorably and not offend people who are just trying to live their lives as, you know, having undergone surgery and living in a different gender presentation versus fighting the ones who are trying to co-opt that as a shield for their, for pushing their ideologies. Mm -hmm. Um, I haven't had a super hard time doing that. Uh, I just focus on the bad effects of this stuff, of these laws and these policies. I, I try not to focus on an individual people unless it is someone like even you're pointing out look this guy is you know what this guy is doing um but i i don't really have a problem with that i do it seems silly to say i do have trans friends um and i have no personal issue with any individual who either identifies that way or has taken steps to transition like that that will never be an issue in and of itself it's like it's only if they've only if there's some you know male rapist who's trying to get into a woman's prison or you know take advantage of these laws and policies uh to make women and girls unsafe but i would never encounter a, a trans person and just be like well i don't like you because you identify this way sure and i, and I know that about myself so that makes it quite easy of course i get plenty of accusations about being a transphobe and you know, right being well that's a the default person, position is name calling right <laughs> exactly yeah. But it's sort of easy enough to just ignore it and brush it off um, because I know that's not me. So it's a pretty easy line to walk because I'm talking about the harm. I'm talking more. I focus more on the harms that these things do to women and girls and children and gay people than really just talking about everyday average people who are just living their lives. Yeah, I want to spend a so little time. I think time. that's how I do it. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. And that's it's similar to me. I haven't I haven't suffered any real attacks yet. Um, uh, you know, but I'm also not as vocal about this stuff. I'm more vocal about child masking and, you know, guns and mental health. But but in this realm, I have to touch it because our agency here in Northern Nevada is pretty big and um it's a, it's adorable. All I can see right now on the screen, by the way, is a fluffy <laughs> tail. Um, yeah, is it, is it Samoid or a, a Malamute or something? What is it? She's part husky. Husky, yeah. I would shut the door, but then she would scratch at it. Yeah, so no, it's, it's awesome. Like, I wish you, if you're not watching the YouTube, this is really entertaining for me. Just watch this fluffy tail bounce up and down. I can't see what it's attached to. Um, but at, at my agency, we're, we're, we're pretty large. And I'm seeing, you know, I know the, the debate is whether or not it's a social contagion or people authentically expressing themselves, right? Well, I'm not interested in that. But what I am seeing is, is a burgeoning emergence of presentation and teenagers coming through our door. And these teenagers have adopted a lot of the language that the trans rights activists have been pushing. And they're mm -hmm. very, very acerbic and defensive. And they're insisting that their parents acquiesce to their newfound identity at the age of 12 14 15 16 yeah. and it and they're essentially coming into care where the parents are like hey I'm, I'm gonna love my kid no matter what i just really don't like your attitude and i'm i'm concerned that now that you want a letter from this therapist for surgery or or hormone hormone replacement or whatever um the kid is is now in a position of authority and it's what, what josh would call a reversal where mm -hmm. they're leaning on, yeah, yeah, they're 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 leaning on these laws and policies, and some of them are are now being pushed by professional associations like the American Association of Marriage and Family Therapy, say you must affirm. It's like, well, yeah. that that presumes that we've ruled out all other causalities that are leading to this uh, identity disturbance, and so. Where am I going with this? Um, I haven't suffered any any slings yet. I want to make sure that. I'm 
presenting as thoughtfully and, and robustly as possible that that there's more to this than it seems, and there's an mm-hmm. undercurrent of activism that is capturing the minds of the children. You're in the gay community, and there's a similar looking fight from what I can determine, right? So like, what's what's that look like when we're talking about it's affecting you guys in your community? Well, it's affecting the gay community in a number of ways. I think one of the most concerning uh, something that really sort of caught me and made me be involved in this is the impact on potentially like young, like children who would grow up to be gay otherwise. Um, I don't want to say young gay kids. I mean, I don't think that they're gay yet, but children, you know, it's it's absolutely true that a lot of people who grow up to be gay are quite gender nonconforming as kids. Absolutely. Like that's just as yeah. it is, you know, not all of them. Obviously, there's caveats and all this, but that's true. And but nowadays, when people speak about trans children, they generally mean children like that. They generally mean a little boy who's a bit more feminine, a little girl who's a bit more masculine. And so you're in a situation now where you're telling these kids who would likely grow up to be gay, some of them not, but more often than not, that actually they're trans, that actually they're, you know, uh, born in the wrong body. They're like actually the opposite sex. And so that is just on its face is just, I think, a crazy thing to tell them, a little child. But it really, it impacts our community because you're like, a lot of us can look at those kids and, and say, well, that was me. You know, uh, there a piece I wrote for Colin Wright Substack was basically titled, I would have been a trans kid. I read that. Uh, um, yeah. For, yeah. For those who haven't, would you mind recapturing it a little bit deeper than what you just said there? Yeah, sure. Um, well, that was just, that was me as a child. I was a very, I was what you would call a tomboy, I guess. I was very uh, gender nonconforming. I was very boyish. Um at various stages of my childhood, I had quite short hair and I loved it. Um, I only wore boy clothes. I had, you know, guy friends. Um, there was some ways I was quite girly, but there was some ways I wasn't. And the little girls I see in the news and articles on YouTube videos on TikTok who parents are saying this, you know, this is my trans kid. You know, he's really a boy. That's exactly like I was, you know. And in the piece for Colin, I also kind of explore the sort of gender affirmation approach that is being pushed by therapists that basically just says whatever the child says goes the child says they're trans they're trans so I explored that and how ridiculous that is but I also explored sort of the criteria in the DSM for diagnosing a trans child and I also explored how that really I would have hit basically all of those points you know uh, you only need to have you don't even need to have all of them I talked about how I would have kind of been for all this so you just look back and you think, well, if I was born today, they'd have put me, not my parents, I don't think my parents would have ever, but let's say someone in school or a doctor or someone could have very well put me on puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones. And it's not that I think being the way I am, just a regular lesbian, is somehow morally better than if I had been like a trans man. But at the end of the day, I would have been probably sterilized. You know, my body would have had irreversible changes and you can't take that back. So the reason it's better to grow up not altered in these ways is so you can make that choice when you're older, you know, and, and that's that's what happens. They, they steal that choice from these kids, you know, that's what's very concerning. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, and that's my concern, too, is it seems overly certain and overly confident to make a permanent life altering decision at such a young age and without uh, full knowledge, information and um, I guess consent, you know, it comes down to consent. Can a child consent? And no, it's, you know, it's the parents consenting on their behalf. Um, 
But I'm going to play devil's advocate here because the other side says, oh no, this stuff's reversible. It's totally fine. And I think there's a grift. I know there's a grift that the medical community that's pushing this stuff is making money. Okay, so we'll just throw that on the table. But they have these quote-unquote studies that say that puberty blockers are reversible. And uh, one lady I just saw recently uh, on a on a captured video from a from some sort of conference a few years back, 2018, I think it was. She was she's a doctor. She's given this class, and she says, "If you don't like that we you know stopped your breast development at a young age, you can just go have breasts put on later." And I'm like, wow, that's, yeah, that's awfully <laughs> callous and, and, yeah. and flippant. Um, are that's you, what they mean by reversible. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. And, and it's really, it's really cruel, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah. But if we set the morality aside, what we're talking about, I think, is basic health of self, capital S. Like, yeah. who yeah. are you at your core? Who, who did you come out of the womb to be? And how are we altering your physical appearance to take you off that path, right? Um, you know, we could chalk it up to God, to how did God make you or whatever, but it's like, how are you designed in the womb and how did you come out? And then uh, are we interceding too quickly? And where I'd like to take this is an exploration of what the detransition community, which is now also burgeoning and finding its own voice, is saying about this stuff. Have you had any interaction with those folks? Oh yeah, absolutely. Whenever they come along, I really try very hard to just sort of uh, not to overestimate my own power, but to sort of boost them to sort of share what they're saying. I think that they're probably the most important group of people in this. Like, I, I really don't think that's an overstatement because they've gone through this and it didn't work and they're going back and now they're having to deal with the fallout, basically. And that's not to say that these are just tragic cases. You know, I, I think a lot of the times our community, the, the gender critical community, tends to treat them as just like this you know sob story tragic case like these are people they're still going ahead with their lives but they do have something that they have to deal with now some very irreversible changes you know a lot of the young women now their voices are very deep um it doesn't mean they can't continue living their lives but a lot of them have very deep regret a lot of them are sterilized um i have a friend who is not detransitioned but uh she is a trans woman but you know desperately regrets being sterilized uh, she's happy that she transitioned, you know, wants to continue living like this. Um, but that is one of the biggest issues. So you don't even have to be a detransitioner to uh, regret the changes you've made. Right. But the detransitioners are very, very important. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to spend some time flipping pages here in the DSM because I want to I want to get to the gender dysphoria um, diagnosis and go, go over some of the criteria. But I, it, it just popped into my head that it's like, that's probably the community we should be affirming. You know, the people who are now yeah. struggling after the fact. And and I'm wondering now if that is a different type of gender dysphoria after transition that you now are struggling with, you know? So um, maybe opine a little bit while I flip pages because I want to get to this, but I don't want to do it while we're <laughs> big dead air. and <laughs> makes for good radio, right? Well, I, I do want to plug, there is a documentary coming out. It's called Affirmation, Affirmation Generation. I'm not too sure. I think it's coming out sometime in March. February 18th. And February 18th. Yep. About uh, four days from out. now. When we're, we're recording on the 15th, it's coming out on the 18th. So by the time this posts, Affirmation Generation will be out. And I hope that okay. YouTube doesn't yeah. block it or whatever. We may have to yeah. promote other channels. Everybody should watch that. I actually did get a sneak peek a few months ago, and it was amazing. Um, 
it was great the people they got to talk there are some people that i that i know that i'm connected with um there was michelle who was fantastic um these are the voices that we're going to hear because they've been through it because they can warn us about the medical side of things how they a lot of them were just pushed through very quickly into making these changes a lot of them were quite young some of them were were older they were already adults so that you know but some of them were teenagers um so yeah i always try really hard to like I said before, boost their voices because I think that's super important. And, but also not treat them as, you know, tragic cases. <laughs> like I've said, you know, they have a lot to contribute. And I'm really, I'm glad for some of them that this is a route they can take. Um, there was one on uh, Twitter and YouTube, Shapeshifter was his name. Mm. And when he first started releasing videos, I was actually very concerned. He seemed quite depressed. He seemed quite, you know, what have I done to myself? But ever since then, he's become kind of a figure in the D-trans community. And it seems that it's given him like a lot of purpose. And I'm always quite, I don't follow him too closely, but I'm always quite happy to see that he's turned this around into something I would say very positive. Are you aware of lawsuits coming back on the practitioners who allowed this to happen without putting up a, I know that the, the gatekeeping is a, is a dirty word in the, in the gender uh, affirming community, um, but who didn't bother to keep the gate, you know, therapists who just went along, uh, doctors who performed the, the, the uh, operations. Are you, are you hearing of that? I'm hearing talk of that, but nothing specific. I think it's pretty difficult to do. I, I have heard here and there people trying to raise funds and trying to do this, but I don't know about any specific cases that are going forward. No. That's one of the things that we're uh, increasingly alert to in the therapy community, I think, is that our ambivalence or our hesitation to just jump right into a f affirmation is that if we end up with somebody who regrets it later, they can come back and say, you should have known better. You violated your ethical yeah. code. And there are certain people who can hide behind like the AMFT's, you know, gender affirming guidelines, all 26 pages, by the way, um, our uh, ethical code in its entirety is 11. But uh, the guidelines are 26 pages. And, and I think that there's some some real legitimate concern that if we don't know what to do, it's almost a, a double bind in counseling parlance is like, you're damned if you do damned if you don't. Yeah. And, um, I, I don't know what to do about that other than to take the wait and see approach, which isn't popular on, on the, the gender affirming side. It's, and on the gender critical side, it's absolutely popular. And your friend of mine, Stephanie Wynn has worked up a pretty robust series of steps to follow when seeking consent for such a thing. But basically our line is drawn at age of majority. If the age of majority is 18, we're not going to let you consent because our laws don't allow us to. And I think we've got pretty firm ground to stand on there. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I did find the gender dysphoria uh, criteria and the, the criteria are pretty similar between children and adolescents. But what's interesting to me yeah. is the language. Um, there's eight of them under criterion A. So there's eight sub-criteria. I'm not going to go through them all, but but I will read A. A marked incongruence between one's experienced slash expressed gender and assigned gender. I'm going to pause there because it assumes that gender is assigned. And and yep. this is a, makes a lot of assumptions. This is a word play. And the word play uh, obfuscates sex differences. And I, I would love to have Colin on someday to explain this because he's a legitimate biologist who explains this way better than anybody I've ever heard. But the biology of sex is that there are two. You can't have others. Yes. You can have nope. intersex, which is the presence of both, but there are still two. And that's essentially the, well, nu the nutshell, right? 
you never even get the presence of both. Uh, intersex, oh. it, it, you don't, in humans, you never get somebody who makes both gametes. You can get someone who, it's ambiguous, genitalia, but you cannot get both. There it is. Okay, like you, okay. You know, it, that's why disorders of sexual development is a better term. I'm, of course, not a biologist, but I, I do have sort of, I'm very interested in this. Because, you know, think about any part of your body that might develop in a, disordered way you know we don't we don't call it a different like if like if a heart has a defect we don't say it's a different type of human but suddenly right. if the reproductive system has some kind of defect or just some kind of different development we've lost our minds yeah, yeah. <laughs> when it's you know what happens is that with people with dsds is something about the reproductive system didn't develop quite as it should i guess you could say and, and it's a it's many disorders there are at least 40 different types of disorders in, in which these things can present so i always just think you know we don't a human with an extra finger we don't suddenly say that's a different kind of human right yeah so it's a very yeah it's a very nuanced discussion there's a lot more to it but there is just two sexes well and i and so so we've already conflated words here in the actual legitimate manual that we're supposed to use to diagnose people okay well let's roll with that for a second it says you know of at least six months duration is manifest by at least six of the following eight criteria right and then criterion b is Condition is associated with clinically significant distress or impairment in social, school, or other important areas of functioning. Well, criterion B is the definition of a mental disorder. It's it's all the way back in the very first pages of the book where it says, what is a mental disorder? It's, it's, it's a pattern of behavior that presents in a clinically significant distress or impairment in important areas of functioning. So if we're operating on that from a clinical standpoint, we would say, presumably, that can be cured. Otherwise it's not a disorder, it's something else, in which case you wouldn't get treatment for it. Therefore, the whole thing falls apart. And to yeah. your point about allowing kids to grow up to be whoever they're supposed to be, I don't know that I understand the rush to identity because identity sounds very permanent in our language, but also you can have multiple identities. I mean, I can identify as a father, a husband, a therapist, a washed up baseball player, a home <laughs> brewer, you know, lots, lots of things that I do aren't necessarily who I am at my core. And I think that there's this big rush to make children choose who they are at their core when they're still developing. And and there let's be is, honest, yeah. like I'm 44, I'm still developing. I hope I never stop developing. Um, I don't ever wanna land on a p position of certainty that says I know fully who I am because I think that would place me at the center of my own universe, which is dangerous in and of itself. Exactly. Well, and a lot of who you are is what you do. I mean, a lot of the things you described are things you do like you know father like friend like and the thing is that you know a child is just a child hasn't had a lot of experience hasn't done a lot of stuff so we've gotten really confused about what identity is I think it's sort of a language game because the only way in which I think it makes sense to say to use the word identity is to identify yourself as something that you are mm -hmm. that someone might not know like I might tell I might identify myself to someone as a writer I don't identify as a writer Right. It's something that I am. And I think we got lost in the language. You know, maybe someone is ambiguous in their sex, so they have to say, oh, I'm identifying myself to you as a woman. Right. But you can't just identify as a woman if you're not that. Yeah. So I think it's, a lot of it is language games and contradictions. And it all sort of falls apart when you start looking too closely at it. You I... know, which is why um, which is why I know that this has gone so far. But I have some hope because in my experience, people very, very rarely backtrack once they've kind of seen uh, what's going on right it does happen but it's rare because you would have to just forget you would have to like wipe your memory 
it's and not know what you know. The, the analogy I frequently use when I teach emotional functioning and, and the power of language when I say I feel versus I think, I feel uh, if used inappropriately and it's not followed by a feeling either emotionally or physiologically, tells the brain that there's nothing you can do about it because it's just mm -hmm. a natural physiological byproduct of whatever is going on in the environment. So if I feel sad, I, that's what I am. All I can do is endure it. I can amplify it. Mm -hmm. I could stay there longer, you know, continuing to ruminate on my sadness or whatever. But if I say, I feel like the room's the wrong color, well, now I've just told my brain that I can't do anything about that opinion. And that's what it is. It's an opinion. So if we say, I am, similarly, I am follows with something that sounds very permanent. And so when we get into like midlife crises for what, you know, whatever somebody may be going through, it often looks like they've identified so long as the thing that they've done, usually like a career, you know, Bob, the accountant is Bob, the accountant, and he's Bob, the accountant everywhere. Once he approaches retirement, he's like, quote, quote, unquote, I don't know who I am without my accountancy practice. It's like, well, that's, that's really dangerous, because it's super yeah. scary to let go of this thing and not replace it with anything. So when we're pushing kids into you are, you are, you are, um, I think it creates a very rigid worldview that, like you said, you ha you almost have to forget that you did that thing. And I would offer, well, you got to replace it with something. So so then what yeah. are you doing? Constantly replacing and you never know who you are? That's That seems equally dangerous to not have any anchoring or mooring. Yeah, I, I feel like I see this happen with sometimes the detransitioners. They will sometimes leave the trans space and jump a bit too far into like maybe gender critical and rad femme uh, because they're trying to replace it with something. Explain rad you know, femme, and, would you? And, uh, sure, well, I'm not a radical feminist, but it's kind of, I would give them sort of the credence of never falling for any of this stuff, the gender ideology stuff. So radical feminism is a branch of feminism. Uh, it was the second wave and radical doesn't mean crazy or extreme. It means uh, getting to the root of something. So radical feminism is all about patriarchy, is all about um, uh, oppression, how women are oppressed under patriarchy. And I don't, I mean, like, I don't really buy into that. Um, but so a lot of gender critical feminists are also radical feminists, but not all of them. Um, it's It's growing way beyond the bounds of that. But for example, back when I found the gender critical subreddit, it was mostly radical feminists. So that was sort of my introduction to this. Um, and so the reason they sort of never fell for it is because, you know, since the 70s, uh, you know, they they kind of saw immediately, immediately the way these women viewed transition, men becoming women, they immediately viewed it through the lens of patriarchy. And they mm. said, this is just another way of men to oppress women. Mm. I, it's a useful analysis in some cases. I, 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 I see that reflected in some of these men, but I don't. Uh, like I don't buy it fully. I, I don't apply it to this entire debate. I don't think there's a, um, a sincere intentionality of the the men who transition to become women wanting to oppress other women. I think it's I think it's yeah, probably just an yeah. identity disturbance, you know, possibly a yeah. personality disorder of some sort. But but it doesn't seem like it's part of that systemic fight that you just described. Yeah, I can see how it can be positioned in like a very much wider societal scale but I, tr I try to keep things more down to like the individual level um which is kind of uh, that's kind of my, my pronoun piece i wrote for colin right that's kind of where i was yeah let's talk from. about that yeah sure yeah yeah definitely <laughs> <laughs> yeah so that was just uh yeah colin right he's got a great Substack, stack reality's last stand he reached out he wanted to do a symposium of articles on pronouns preferred pronouns uh when to use them when not to use them what our opinions were on them so he reached out and he asked me to write a piece and I was very happy to do that. 
And that's the end of the show. Thanks for listening, everyone. That's it. <laughs> uh, that's it. What? All yeah. right. I'm going to share my opinion at the end, but you share your opinion on pronouns. Uh, capture, capture that article, if you would, without without giving too much away. We want to drive people to call on Substack. Sure. Uh, yeah. So my uh, essential idea was I started it. It was about 600 words. Very briefly, I started it by saying I do not agree with them ever being coerced, prefer pronouns to ever have them mandated or coerced or, you know, you have to use them in the workplace setting or, or court of law or which is unfortunate because in Canada, we unfortunately you do have to do that in a court of law. So I kind of came out very strong against that. But I knew Colin would easily be able to get uh, other women, other feminists, you know, writing very strongly about uh, against never using them, like just a strong opinion about never using them for anyone at, for any reason at all. So for most of my piece, I actually focused on the fact that on a personal level, I don't really have a problem with it. You know, that's my choice. If I have a friend who prefers to go by an opposite sex pronoun, I would do it. Um, so that was kind of, and that was sort of Colin's position as well. Um, so like I said, I knew he would get people arguing to never do it. So I wanted to offer just sort of a, bring it down to a personal level. Um, because like I said, with like radical feminist discourse, it tends to focus more on a wide scale and like patriarchy and society. And when talking about this stuff, I try not to get too caught up in that and um, keep it down to the personal. So my position was that sometimes I will for for close friends and people I respect, I will use their preferred pronouns. And I agree with that. And I, I think that taking the individualistic approach is wise. I think it honors personal autonomy very well. I think it aligns with our professional ethical codes. Um, but it flies in the face of what I think that the movement is trying to do, which is to um, blanket policies for whatever reason. And uh, I mean, I tend to default to power and control because I think that people seek power and control. And if they seek it in unhealthy ways, that's unfortunate. And I think this is one of those where if you can compel someone to use your pronouns, then you've got some power over them. It may not be mm -hmm. respectful power like you and I are talking about, which is like, hey, you know, you, you present as a woman, I call you she, her, or whatever, and you go, actually, I prefer to be called Zay Z. Like, okay, all right, we, we, are, we have friend, we're friends, we have a relationship, I want to maintain that relationship. But compelling me to, to use somebody's preferred pronouns against my desire to speak freely about it now bumps up against free speech. But I think there's something mm -hmm. else at play here. And I, I tweeted about this some time ago where I basically said that there's a, there's a cruel irony in, in posting the pronouns too. Because if you're trying to make yourself present as a, as a warm, welcoming person for the trans community, what you're essentially doing is you're stating that people who may be struggling or in transition or just don't know that they must affirmatively declare in that moment to align. And so you're, you're almost pigeonholing them into something that they need to pick right now when really right now they're just, they're just figuring it out. And I think that's, that's cruel because you're hastening a process that the individual should be allowed as much time as he or she wants to, to, to go through this and then come out the other side and say, okay, I, I now know, you know, better who I am. Mm -hmm. But if we're compelling this upon children, for example, we're robbing them of the opportunity to explore. And I, I don't think that's healthy. And I don't think that's healthy for a bunch of reasons. I don't know what to do about this other than to continue saying, let's continue meeting people where they are, which is a page stolen out of Christian Conti's book. He's a big 
uh, you know, influence in my life, friend and mentor. But the idea of of his yield theory is to meet people where they are, see through their outward behavioral presentations to the soul of the person on the inside and see that, see that for all its, mm-hmm. its potential. And when we limit potential, we limit people. And when we limit people, they're not able to develop fully, achieve fully, and, and it can really slide them into a position of, of depression or shame or anxiety where they're having to, to pick based on what the world is trying to make them do. And I think, I think that's very dangerous. Are you... I think- yeah, yeah, I think that's what's so depressing about this is is the limiting people, especially limiting kids. Like yesterday I had this experience. I uh, was watching this um, video from our health services here in the province, Alberta Health Services. And it was about like just, it was about like the LGBTQ plus what the hospitals are doing to make people feel welcome. It was just a bunch of people talking about how important their pronouns are. And But then at one point there was this kid. Uh, he was maybe, I don't know, 10, 10 11 years old. And he had long hair and he was just like, oh, it makes me so happy to be uh, called a girl and all this. But what made me pause is I had seen him before. Um, A year ago, I had written a piece about this organization in the city called Skipping Stone and they help kids transition. This kid is on the front page of their website, younger, a few years younger, maybe eight or or something. And I recognized his face. So I, I went quickly to Skipping Stone website and I was like, that's the same kid. Here he is still, he's he's so inra- he's so captured by this now, right? First, he was the face of Skipping Stone, the organization that is helping kids transition. Now he's like the spokesman for Alberta Health Services is, is how great this all is. And he's mm-hmm. still, he still hasn't even hit puberty. He's probably on puberty blockers by now. But, you know, he's sitting there talking about how happy he is to be a girl. And to me, I'm like, he has no hope of, of, of breaking out of this. You know, they're probably going to put on puberty blockers. If they didn't, maybe he would go into puberty and you know, start having crushes and maybe decide he doesn't want to do this. Maybe he would like girls, maybe he would like boys, but that might help clear things up, right? If you could just let a kid go through puberty. Uh, instead, I'm I'm just looking at this poor kid thinking, you know, you're not going to get a chance to grow up and develop and 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 even develop sexually, right? That's, that's another thing they're robbing them of. Like we talk a lot about uh, fertility and sterilization, but they rob them of their sexuality as well, which is just horrendous to think about. <laughs> like if you start a kid on these treatments so young, so it's limiting their potential in just so many ways, like physical, emotional, mental, you know, and talking about puberty blockers being reversible, you know, sure, if the kid stops taking them, their body will sort of resume. But at a later point, and I think there are some studies now that show that there's even like an IQ drop, you know, I'm, I, I don't don't quote me, but I this is just what I've been hearing, right? Because you miss crucial milestones. Yeah. So you have really altered, and this is also assuming they they get off the puberty blockers. 99% of the time, they go straight on to cross-sex hormones. So talk of reversibility is is, is nonsense because you put them on these cross-sex hormones that then are not reversible at all. And then, of course, worst case case scenario, they go on to surgery, which is just, then it's just done. So you really are closing off so many possibilities for these kids. Well, and and because they're involved in this process and if this kid like you talk about find if they find themselves in a celebrity position of some sort there's not a lot of room for exploration of anything else um yeah from baseball to band to physics club because they're so consumed with this identity chase that to your point child development requires lots of robust exploration and um and experimentation with lots of things to find out what you enjoy. And if your whole childhood is consumed by this one thing, and an outsized percentage of your time is spent focusing on it, I could analogize it to any kid who is, 
you know, at say at the age of eight years old, pushed into baseball and that's all they know. And they're playing baseball 11 months out of the year. And yeah, they're going to school. Yeah. They're learning their math or whatever, but then they emerge on the other side and maybe they're 18 and destined for some college scholarship or potential draft into the, into the pros and they break an ankle. Now, what have you done? You, at what point now do you get to go back and try to pick up the trumpet or, um, you know, explore dance or art? It's like you, you lost that window. And I think we do kids harm whenever we push them in one direction exclusively. This just happens to be a a gender ideology yeah. direction, but it, it sounds like the same type of stuff that, that it afflicts lots of our celebrities when they are children in acting or music or whatever it may be. And then later in life, maybe that doesn't take off the way they hoped, or maybe they change their mind or something else. They have, they have a family and it's like, well, I got to reinvent myself, but I don't know how, cause I don't have the support structure. And now the whole world mm-hmm. expects this of me. Um, and then it leads to really, really bad outcomes. Like addiction and suicide yeah, we've seen that yeah exactly and and unfortunately yeah, and I, as just to put a bow on that i think that you know the, the gender affirming community is hanging its hat on suicide prevention which absolutely offends me professionally because yes. that's not something you play around with you don't you don't just dangle suicide in front of people and say well, we're saving them from suicide by putting them on puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones because it, it almost invites that not only is this the best way but it is the only way to keep them from taking their own lives. And I am very, very alarmed and, and I'm worried about five to 10 years from now when we have a bunch of regret, how many more suicides maybe we have caused. Oh, exactly. It's so manipulative. I'm sure you have a lot more to think and say about that. But when they, whenever they bring up the suicide issue, that it, it, it's so it's so gross to me because it's manipulation. Because if that's true, if these kids are really suffering more, they inflate the numbers, first of all. They're lying. They do. But I, I know, but I know that these kids do suffer more Then clearly they need actual help, not just being told, yep, you're born in the wrong body, you should transition, it's going to fix everything. And that's the thing, the transitioning is dangled as like this cure-all, you know, you have kids who are just depressed or anxious or gay or like all these things, and this is offered as the way to help you feel better, right? And the sad thing is a lot of the times these hormones I'm not too like for like for the girls for example take some testosterone and they think it's great they think they should take it because suddenly they feel a little bit more confident suddenly they, they feel a little bit less anxious and it has these like effects that makes them antidepressant effects in the beginning yep. so then it's like further the, the community the activists tell them that means it's correct for you they have this this new line they're doing like well you can always just try the hormones for a few weeks and months and see what happens oh. and if it's right for you it'll feel great and I think I don't know if it, wow. I don't know if it works the other way around the estrogen for the boys maybe it mellows them out I don't know but for the girls especially they're like well this does feel good so I'm gonna keep doing this because I feel energized I feel strong you know I feel maybe less scared to walk alone at night uh, so of course they're gonna stick to it and then you're on a like, treadmill just like any other drug that we pump into kids bodies I mean of course Vivance and Stratera and Adderall help you focus on your schoolwork because that's what stimulants are designed to do yeah. are you supposed to take it the rest of your life. I'm of the opinion, no. Uh, I think that medication yeah. intervention should be used almost as a shoehorn. Nobody knows what a shoehorn is anymore, but back in the day when we had stiff yeah. leather shoes, <laughs> we would use this thing called the shoehorn to help the heel slide in so you don't crush the heel of the shoe. But once, you're, once your foot's in the shoe, you don't walk around with a shoehorn in all day, right? So once behavioral yeah. change takes effect in a child who's no longer distracted or um, anxious or edgy or whatever it is, uh, then we titrate down the 
drug intervention and we let them sustain themselves with their new behavioral decision making. So doing the same thing to, to children who are confused about what gender they want to you know, uh, slide into, I, I think it's just, it's nefarious. Well, what gets to me is that to accept this stuff for kids, but also for adults, it's, we have to throw away so much that we know about childhood development, human development, like stuff that we know. We have to kind of just forget it, like identity formation, just for this one special case, we have to forget it. You know, for other cases where people might be feeling suicidal, we say, okay, don't glorify it. Don't dangle in front of them like that. But for this, right. you know, people always liken it to anorexia. Well, you don't affirm their delusion that, like, they actually look much bigger than they are. So that's, you know, I think, and that's why it's so important to just keep talking. Because for sensible, reasonable people, when you point these things out, they generally, they generally understand. You know, like, I honestly, in my personal life, there hasn't been a single person that I haven't approach this topic with that push that fought me on this because as soon as you kind of start just pointing out the flaws and all of this they're like yeah that's true but everyone's just a bit too scared to talk because you know they're afraid of getting canceled or just yeah or licenses like are on the line or... yeah and, yep. you know, i mean it's look understandable at, yeah i mean you look at me and you know i run a company of 30 people and you know if i if i lose my license because i didn't uh, affirm in the right way that's yeah. that's 30 livelihoods along with their families and that's and then exactly. all the, the help that they get you know, granted they okay they can get jobs elsewhere but what's the point like what's what's the end yeah. goal here of this is it to to create uh broad-based support for anyone who walks through the door or is it to bludgeon the entire community for this fractional minority of the population because if we start going that direction it's like well how many other minority percentages of the population do we have to start moving heaven and earth to make it make it comfortable for them you know it's like yeah. oh what well, most of life is discomfort and if we're trying to jump in front of your discomfort by giving you what appears to be the easy path out and it is not um no. it but it does give a sense of certainty and confidence then we're gonna have to start doing it with everybody it's pretty soon we just all we're doing is failing to challenge we're failing to challenge worldviews yep. we're failing to help people grow through their discomfort and i don't i don't like where that leads at all no, no, I don't either. Have you heard about the situation in Canada? Um, how you can't really do anything but affirm, like therapists or doctors, or it's literally against the law. I, I'm worried like, it's coming here. Yeah, I, I don't. I have to look into if there's been actual like real fallout from that. But over a year ago, we passed the bill which says you know you can't do conversion therapy, which is just silly because nobody here is doing conversion therapy for sexual orientation. First of all, which is where that term comes from. Well, that was a hijacked phrase too, because conversion was therapy hijacked. back in the day was involved like shock treatments and shaming yes. and and to change sexual orientation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. And it, that's that's and not they tacked on gender identity. There was never a conversion therapy for gender identity. There was never you know send away to camps to get shocked. That that wasn't a thing. I'm sure people have faced terrible things throughout history for for being gender non-conforming I'm, absolutely i'm not denying that but there was never a conversion therapy for that so for our government they passed the bill to ban it unanimously they were hugging across the aisle it was just ridiculous and so i don't know yet if if any like therapists have gotten into trouble but all i know is they're very scared they're very scared to do anything but affirm someone comes in says i'm trans i'm the opposite sex all they have to say is yes it, they're very scared to explore why are you feeling this way because people are afraid that asking any questions at all could be uh, seen as conversion therapy. And to me, there's two fundamental issues there. One, the fundamental issue that differentiates it from sexual orientation. Sexual orientation, uh, for all intent and purpose, seems to be immutable. We've we've pretty much ended that conversation. Um, 
and this affirming thing presumes that trans is immutable. And it's like, you're born in the yeah. wrong body, right? Nope, sorry, nothing you can do about it except, you know, get your surgeries or whatever, um, which is very bizarre. But yeah. even if we presume that, the slippery slope I see for for affirmation and affirming care is that it's not going to stay in the gender genie bottle. It's going to leak out into uh, any other symptomological presentation, and we're going to end up with parents bringing their kids in already identified what the problem is and saying, this is my kid. And then we already talk like this. My kid is ADHD. My kid is bipolar. And it's like, okay, well now we're back to an identification of a, of a core character trait. And I just fundamentally disagree with that because if that were the case, then no one could ever change. No one could ever heal. My profession ceases to exist and I can offer nothing to those who walk through the door in distress or struggling. I just have to say, Yep. yep, that's you. Why am I here then? Yeah, exactly. There's no reason why this has to stay confined to trans and to gender. I'm sorry, my cat. There's here, a different tail on the camera. You're absolutely now. right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I hope she doesn't meow too loudly. Oh, it makes <laughs> it, it just makes the show better. There you go. Say hi. Oh, hi. <laughs> this is Buddha. She looks way. fluffy. Yeah. <laughs> sorry for the very rude interruption. That's okay. Uh, any cat named Buddha is welcome on my screen. <laughs> Now she's going to sit in my lap, so that's what we'll do. So I think, I, I don't know what your your thoughts are. I think that the collective community of medicine broadly needs to stand up and say, and point out, point out the inherent contradiction between medical ethics and the laws as written, right? So, mm-hmm. for example, in the state of Nevada, I have my ethical codes adopted by reference into law. And some of those ethical codes say things like, you know, thou shalt not coerce people. Um, well, what is this? It's coercion. It's saying that there's only one way to do it. And there's this whole body of evidence that's very, very suspect pushing the the logic behind it. So where does our intentionality go from there? Am I intentionally interfacing with this person to help them achieve the best self that they can be? Or am I interfacing with them solely to reaffirm what they already thought when they came through the door? I don't know how that squares with my ethical code. And, mm-hmm. and now I'm potentially going to be reported to some licensing board to have my license stripped if these codes get adopted into law. I, I don't know how that plays out. Yeah, well, have you, you've heard, I'm sure, of the case of Amy Hamm, the nurse here in Canada. No. Oh, okay, she's Tell a me. friend of mine. Um, so she's a nurse. Um, she, ha- she put up like a big I, I heart JK Rowling billboard uh, in Vancouver like three years ago now. And as a result of that, two anonymous public complaints were made against her to her regulatory body, the British Columbia College of Nurses and Midwives. Um, Nothing to do with her conduct at work, nothing to do with being mean to trans patients, nothing at all, but just about her social media postings, because she's like me, she's involved in this debate. She's hosted a bunch of talks about gender identity ideology. She started an organization. So just complaints that she is transphobic, uh, you know, so because of that, she's been through an over two year ordeal where her college is trying to take her license. She's currently been through 10 days of disciplinary hearings. Eight more have been added on. That's still to come. Uh, this has turned into just a huge spectacle. Uh, it's 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 awful. They're still debating. One of her witnesses was actually dismissed. She's not going to be allowed to testify. One was the college is doing their absolute best to argue that she's a horrible transphobe because of some of the statements she's made. I'm going to get rid of my cat. <laughs> um, 
it's just terrible she's a friend of mine this is not easy for her this is thankfully she has um pro bono legal representation but it's scary because she this has nothing to do with her conduct at work even this is just statements that she has made on her own time in her private life you know as part of her activism and she could lose her license for this so i think anybody watching anybody aware of this would be very scared this is this is jordan peterson but with this is exactly i was about to say i was about to say uh and he has he thankfully has um it's caught his attention he's he's aware of it now but yeah basically this is jordan peterson they want to re-educate him right and i think potentially take his license away as well if he won't do it yeah Yeah, so thankfully uh she's caught his attention and he's been tweeting a bit and stuff but it's just a nightmare. I've I've been to all of the days of the hearings as much, as much as I can. And, you know, ridiculous things are being said, like that lesbians can have penises and that sex is not binary. And, you know, the, the witnesses, call, uh, the college's witnesses are saying this stuff, you know. <laughs> so they have an agenda. And it, it's weird, like, if you take this from a from a logical standpoint and you go, all right, let's 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 just do data. The numbers of people harmed by this person's social media posts versus the numbers of people harmed if she doesn't have a job right let's let's evaluate that Um, and there's a nursing shortage as well yeah i I know everywhere right yeah so it's like do we really want to chase people out of the workforce and and unfortunately we already saw this with vaccine mandates where it's like yeah we don't care how many people we chase out of the workforce get your shots exactly it's like whoa man um, I I work in the in the gun realm, and you know the firearms community is already skittish of getting mental health care because they think they're going to have their their rights taken away, and the people pushing for what we call in the United States red flag laws or extreme risk protection orders basically says if somebody's in distress or crisis time, uh, police or or family members can file a petition with a judge to have their firearms taken away in that moment of crisis. Okay, seems reasonable, but. Now they're expanding those laws to include healthcare practitioners like myself. So we've given more reason for firearms owners not to come into care. And we already know that firearm suicides right. are the largest portion of gun deaths broadly across the United States to the tune about 60%. It's like, well, why are they taking their own lives? Because they can't get care because they're afraid that they're going to lose their ability to, right. to defend themselves. And that's that's a civil right where, where I come from. And, um, you know, it's enshrined in our Constitution, protected so the government can't take it away. But now government is compelling practitioners to tattle on them if they're in distress. It's like, well, that's a, a horrible message to send on several fronts, not the yeah. least of which is that I'm I'm not interested in helping you overcome this thing that's temporary. I'm more interested in, in taking away your property. Like that doesn't make any yeah. sense. And and we're harming that's more really people than we're saving. And it's it seems exactly. very, very parallel to this. Yeah, that's what a lot of this is about nowadays. We end up just harming more people than we're saving in uh, in the name of ideologies and uh, things like that. And you see it across so many domains, gender, the stuff you're involved in. It's just everywhere. I don't know what the answer is because if the, the powers that be, the people are in charge and the decision-making bodies that are largely unelected and we can't, we can't just recall them because they're appointed, um, if they're not going to change their tune, I, I don't see any other way out besides parallel economies popping up that are going to serve the the middle three standard deviations of the mean and the distribution curve. Um, but the, the regulatory capture, the licensing body capture from these ideologues, I think is very dangerous because you're, you're talking about a, a very, very small percentage of the population that actually aligns with this belief. It's like, why can't you just go do your thing with your people? Why you got to compel everybody into this understanding? I don't, I, don't, I mean, it's nuts. 
I mean, I know yeah, what Josh's exactly. position that's, that's, is. But... Yeah. That's where it is so deranged that the fact that they have to just compel everyone else to play along. That's what that's what really gets me. That's why I fight this so hard, because, you know, a lot of women fight this so hard because they say, uh, you know, for to, to maintain the reality of sex and biological sex. And I totally get it. I totally understand that's super important to maintain our single sex spaces. But for me, I see it more as like a pathology of people trying to just like control everyone else, like have you play along with their delusions to the point that you will let a rapist into a female prison. Like part of that is, of course, the safety of women. And the other part of that is that we are just being controlled by these people and they're enjoying it and they're getting off on it. And, you know, even my pronoun piece was titled like escaping course of control in the gender debate because I don't like it from either side. I think right now it's much more on the trans and the gender side, like the, the whole controlling. But I try to keep away from that in every aspect of my life, like even in the sort of being on the gender critical side, I don't want to be beholden to a, a group and an ideology. Right. 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 So that's kind of what bothers me the most about this and the laws we have and 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 the you know the anti-conversion therapy bill it stops therapists from doing their jobs like that mindset is just so dangerous and so pernicious and like we have to fight against it like there hasn't been in Canada at least there hasn't been enough people speaking out you know you I think that's going to be a big part of this um like last night I was working on a piece about this one uh, guy, trans identified guy who has been very influential in uh, the politics of my province and of the country. And honestly, he's not even like a powerful, rich guy. He just is willing to speak. He went to speak for Bill C-16. He, he He's in the ears of the politicians. You know, he's leveraging his trans identity to speak to them. And so I'm like thinking, look, we just have to do this. Like, we just have to be loud enough and vocal enough that maybe they want to talk to us. Maybe they want to get my input, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so I have some hope. I don't know if it's naive or too optimistic, but I think that's the way we have to go, at least here in Canada where I am. Are you, you're familiar with Gad Saad, right? So yeah, slight, not super, but yes. He's, you mentioned pathology and he's, his book, um, uh, The Parasitic Mind, analogizes this, what's going on in culture to a, a, a mental pathology it's like it's like mm. a, a virus that takes over the mind it's a neat metaphor but I, th I i think it's an appropriate one because if you peel it back what it's all got its roots in postmodernism and postmodernism basically says nothing is real everything can be challenged yep. everything can be questioned there is no truth and yep. so when you erode basic fundamental premises in say science and biology to the point where nothing is true or nothing has meaning and all definitions can be challenged then we get a world where everything can be invented and out yeah. of that world if postmodernism gets pushed into policy making no one knows where to stand and simultaneously those in power can flex whatever they want based on their own manufactured definitions it's really really awful and i, I don't think people really understand how dangerous that is at the decision making yeah. level I think that's the main problem here. That's the reason I, I did a, a bachelor's degree and honestly I could see the postmodernist stuff sort of creeping up and I didn't want to go any further because I thought if I pursued, you know, post-secondary education any further, I would just be talking postmodern nonsense like for yeah. the next six years. Like I couldn't stand it. It's you know, just a I bunch of logical sort of, fallacies. It is. And I think that's the main problem here. And, and that's why sort of going back to my pronoun piece, that's why I argued that I don't care if you use it for personal friends because I don't think that's the problem. You know, some people made the argument that, oh, we went from using preferred pronouns to men in women's prisons. I don't think that's the way it went. Of course, everything influences everything else. But the reason we're there is mostly postmodernism where, you know, you don't have any truths, you don't have any real definitions. So that's what leads to men in women's prisons. 
and all this other bad stuff, not making the personal choice to call a friend something that makes them feel better. I really just don't think that's where it came from. It, it also leads to broad identity disturbance. So not just gender identity, but if you don't know who you are because yeah. you're just merely a reflection of everybody else's creation, you're going to be mentally ill because yeah. you don't have any anchoring. There is nothing to point to to say, this is where I stand. And unfortunately, yeah. in this in this current culture of, of all the attacks and so forth, just simply standing on something is a threat to that postmodern culture because it declares that there is an immutable truth somewhere, which is very ironic yeah. because it pushes back against the my lived experience, right? It's like, well, why can't I have my lived experience? Well, because it doesn't fit with mine. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's the wrong lived experience. Right. No, no, that's true. That's absolutely true. Well, um, we, we're pushing up on an hour here. Um, I really appreciate your time. Um, I think we've covered a lot, and it's been a good yeah. conversation. I've learned uh, I've learned that your name is pronounced Eva, not Eva. Um, <laughs> yeah, hopefully the, that's fine. You can misname me. Hopefully, <laughs> I was just going to go there, too. I was going to say, hopefully the policymakers don't compel me to use something that I don't want to use. Um, where can people reach you, and how can they read oh, your so writings? I'm, I'm mostly on Twitter. I'm at Eva underscore Kurilova. Uh, I write for Gender Descent. That's a Canadian site. We just kind of follow like the money in Canada behind the gender movement. I write for Redux, which is awesome. Um, they're sort of breaking all the big stories in this. Um, I write for The Distance. It's a really, really great Substack. stack. Uh, all those ads are in my little Twitter bio, so you can see them there. Cool. Um... You're doing good work, and I really appreciate it. I appreciate a thoughtful conversation. I think we need more of these because they're... Thank you. It, it, for, it's really weird. For as much as podcasting has exploded and as much as the long-form uh, discussion has permeated culture, I think it's getting away from the you know the six-minute talking head sound bites that we see on, on news. I think people are really gravitating more toward thoughtful discourse. It's almost like it's being pushed aside. And um, I don't get that, but we need we need more of this. So I appreciate you being able to carve thank out the you. time to do this. Yeah, well, thank you. I'm really, really glad that you had me on. It was so nice to talk to you and finally connect face to face. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's neat. It's neat making friends uh, quasi IRL. Yeah. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Well, on behalf of our uh, Naga Notes family in Cambodia, South Africa, and across the world, especially here in the United States and Calgary, Alberta, uh, we thank you for tuning in on behalf of the Zephyr Wellness family here in Northern Nevada. We wish you all great mental wellness. Bye-bye.